From New York, this is Democracy Now! We commenced the lawsuit this morning um, on behalf of several people who actually went to the Ecuadorian embassy to visit Julian Assange. And unbeknownst to them, um, we've learned through several sources that, in fact, all of their equipment when they went into the uh, embassy were uh, taken, imaged, and uh, in addition, their conversations were uh, recorded um, by a company at the uh, direction of Mike Pompeo of the CIA. The CIA and former CIA director Mike Pompeo have been sued for spying on U.S. lawyers and journalists who met WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange while he was living in political asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. We'll speak to the lead lawyer who filed the suit. But first, defund the FBI. That's the growing call by Republicans after the FBI raided Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. I think every single candidate and elected official in the GOP right now needs to go on record pledging to defund these lawless agencies. We'll speak to Brooklyn College professor Alex Vitale. His latest piece is headlined, There Are Good Reasons to Defund the FBI. They Have Nothing to Do with Trump. Plus, we look at the growing calls for longtime prisoner Matula Shakur to be granted compassionate release. The 72-year-old black liberation activist has been jailed for over 35 years. He's now suffering from bone cancer and is reportedly near death. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Georgia, prosecutors have informed Rudy Giuliani he's the target of a criminal investigation into interference in the 2020 election. Giuliani is scheduled to appear before a special grand jury in Atlanta tomorrow, where he faces questions about his efforts to keep former President Donald Trump in power. Giuliani led Trump's attempts to overturn the results of Joe Biden's victory in Georgia by more than 12,000 votes. Giuliani repeatedly cited baseless conspiracy theories and led an unlawful effort to put forward an alternate slate of presidential electors. Meanwhile, a federal judge in Georgia has denied a bid by Republican Senator Lindsey Graham to quash a subpoena ordering Graham to testify to the grand jury in Atlanta. Fulton County prosecutors want Senator Graham to explain the reason for two calls he placed just after the 2020 election to Brad Raffensperger, Georgia's Republican secretary of state. Raffensperger told reporters after the calls Graham had hinted he should throw away ballots from areas where Biden likely got more votes. I asked if the ballots could be matched back to the voters, and then they, I, I got the sense it implied that uh, then you could throw those out. Uh, for the, and he really would look at the counties with the highest um, per- frequent error of uh, signatures. Well, it's just an implication that uh, uh, look hard and see how many ballots you could throw out. South Carolina Republican Senator Graham has promised to appeal the order compelling him to testify in court, arguing he shielded under the Constitution's speech or debate clause. 
The Justice Department's asked a federal judge not to unseal a sworn affidavit used by the FBI to recover 11 sets of secret government documents from Trump's home in Florida. The affidavit was the basis of an application that convinced a judge to sign off on the warrant used by federal agents in their search of Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence on August 8th. In a federal court filing, prosecutors said the affidavit contains highly classified material and sensitive information about witnesses, and that its release would compromise the continuing investigation. Voters in Alaska and Wyoming head to the polls today for primary elections. In Wyoming, pro-Trump primary challenger Harriet Hageman is poised to unseat incumbent Congressmember Liz Cheney amidst backlash over Cheney's role as one of two Republicans on the House January 6th committee. In Alaska, former governor and 2008 Republican vice presidential nominee Sarah Palin leads a crowded field seeking to fill Alaska's lone U.S. House seat, which had been held by Don Young for nearly half a century before his death in March. Meanwhile, Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski faces 18 Republican primary challengers, including pro-Trump candidate Kelly Shabaka. Last year, Murkowski was one of just seven Republican senators who voted to convict then-President Trump after the House impeached him over the January 6th Capitol insurrection. The Biden administration's ruled out releasing roughly $7 billion in foreign assets held by Afghanistan's central bank on U.S. soil. That's according to The Wall Street Journal, which reports Biden's decision not to return the funds came after he ordered the assassination of al-Qaeda's leader in Kabul. This comes as the United States warns a staggering 95 percent of Afghans are not getting enough food, with that number rising to almost 100 percent in female-headed households. Earlier this year, Democracy Now! spoke with Masouda Sultan, Afghan-American women's rights activist. Human Rights Watch agrees with, with us. Uh, uh, the head of the U.N. agrees with us. The head of the International Rescue Committee, David Miliband, agrees with us. Um, you talk to just about every humanitarian organization, um, any economist, they will tell you that a central bank's reserves belong in the central bank. But instead, we have just decided that Afghanistan cannot have its central bank reserves, that that economy will now be crippled. We just knocked the legs out of it. And the humanitarian crisis will just grow and grow. Afghanistan will be an aid-dependent country. Masouda Sultan is founding member of Unfreezing Afghanistan. Ukraine's military says an elite unit operating behind enemy lines was responsible for a massive explosion at a Russian ammunition depot earlier today in the Russian annexed province of Crimea in southern Ukraine. Video shows a huge fireball and smoke rising over a village in northern Crimea near the site of the blast. Russian state media described the explosion as sabotage that damaged civilian infrastructure. This follows another explosion last week at a Russian air base in Crimea, which destroyed as many as nine Russian warplanes. Elsewhere, a massive United Nations chartered ship carrying more than 23,000 metric tons of wheat has left a port in southern Ukraine bound for Ethiopia. It's the first shipment of food from a Black Sea port in Ukraine since Russia invaded more than six months ago. In Kenya. 
William Ruto has been declared winner of a highly contested presidential election. Kenya's Electoral Commission says Ruto defeated the former prime minister and opposition leader, Raila Odinga, by a narrow margin, getting just over 50 percent of the vote. Ruto has been deputy president of Kenya since 2013. His party, the Kenya First Coalition, has also won a majority of seats in Kenya Senate. At least four Kenyan election commissioners said they did not support the results due to the opaque nature of the vote count, as diplomats and international election officials were removed from the tallying hall right before Ruto's victory was announced Monday. Ruto will serve as Kenya's fifth president since its independence from Britain in 1963. He addressed the East African nation Monday. There is no room for vengeance. There is no room for looking back. We are looking into the future. In Saudi Arabia, women's rights defender Sama al-Shahab has been sentenced to 34 years in prison over her advocacy. It's reportedly the longest sentence ever given to a Saudi women's rights activist. Al-Shahab was initially sentenced to a six-year prison term over tweets she posted critical of Saudi Arabia's treatment of women. But an appeals court last week increased the sentence to 34 years behind bars and banned al-Shahab from leaving the kingdom for an additional 34 years. Human rights advocates warn of worsening conditions for Saudi women as Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman intensifies his crackdown on dissent. Saudi Arabia's state-controlled oil company has broken its own record after posting a profit of $48.4 billion for the second quarter of 2022. It's the largest quarterly profit ever posted by a publicly traded company, coming as Russia's invasion of Ukraine helped push oil prices up. In Germany, police used batons, pepper spray and water cannons to attack about 150 climate justice advocates who staged a nonviolent sit-in protest Saturday on a rail supply line leading to the harbor in Hamburg. The protesters are seeking to halt construction of new liquefied natural gas terminals along Germany's coast. This comes as German households face spiraling fuel costs that could see them spend hundreds of euros more per year to power their homes. This is Protest spokesperson Charlie Dietz. In Germany, too, the energy crisis is hitting those hardest who contributed the least. Crisis in which many bear the cost, while the few corporations pocket billions in profits. It is explicitly not an energy crisis. It is a capitalist distribution crisis. Lawyers for Julian Assange have filed a lawsuit against the CIA and its former director, Mike Pompeo, charging they spied on U.S. lawyers and journalists who met Assange while he was living in the Ecuadorian embassy in London while in political asylum. The lawsuit is being filed as Britain prepares to extradite the WikiLeaks founder to the United States, where he faces up to 175 years in prison for violating the Espionage Act by publishing classified documents exposing U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. Later in the broadcast, we'll speak with the lead attorney behind the lawsuit. 
Here in New York, another person has died at the Rikers Island jail complex, the 12th so far this year. The New York Times reports Ricardo Cusiani was found Monday morning sitting in a shower area with a sheet around his neck. The 68-year-old died about an hour later. His attorney had reportedly alerted Rikers officials to put him on suicide watch. Cusiani was a former neurologist who was convicted two weeks ago of sexually assaulting and raping at least six of his patients. And in California, thousands of unionized mental health care providers in multiple cities have gone on strike, demanding the country's largest nonprofit health care organization provide better care to people who desperately need services. Kaiser Permanente serves some 9 million people in California. According to the Union of Healthcare Workers, Kaiser has just one mental health provider for every 2,600 patients, forcing people to wait months for an appointment. Union members are also accusing Kaiser of violating treatment clinical guidelines and California state laws. The strike comes after a year of negotiations between the National Union of Healthcare Workers and Kaiser, which has rejected union proposals to expand the workforce and improve access to care. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Justice Department has asked a federal judge not to unseal a sworn affidavit used by the FBI to recover 11 sets of secret government documents from Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida last week. The affidavit is the basis of an application that convinced a judge to sign off on the FBI's search warrant. In a federal court filing, prosecutors said the affidavit's release would compromise the continuing investigation and could chill the future cooperation of witnesses. The warrant, which was unsealed Friday, revealed Trump is being investigated for three federal crimes, violating the Espionage Act, obstruction of justice, and criminal handling of government records. Fallout from the FBI raid is continuing to grow as Republican lawmakers denounce the FBI, with Florida Senator Rick Scott comparing the agency to the Gestapo in Nazi Germany. Fox News host Jesse Waters has called for the firing of FBI Director Christopher Wray, who was appointed by Donald Trump. Well, Chris Wray has to be fired by the next Republican president. Got to be fired on day one. Don't even wait. Just fire him right off the jump. A growing number of Republicans are calling for the FBI to be defunded. Far-right Republican Congress member Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted on Monday, impeach Merrick Garland and defund the corrupt FBI, end political persecution and hold those accountable that abuse their positions of power to persecute their political enemies while ruining our country. This shouldn't happen in America. Republicans must force it to stop, Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted. Others calling for the FBI to be defunded include Anthony Sabatini, a Republican congressional candidate in Florida. I think every single candidate and elected official in the GOP right now needs to go on record pledging to defund these lawless agencies. 
The Republican attacks on the FBI mark a radical shift for the party, which has long embraced the FBI. Last year, Democratic Congressmember Bobby Rush of Illinois introduced legislation to force the FBI to disclose more details of its secret COINTELPRO program in the 1960s to surveil and disrupt groups, including the Black Panther Party and the American Indian Movement, as well as Martin Luther King Jr. and other individuals. The legislation had 24 co-sponsors, none of them Republican. To talk more about the FBI, we're joined by Alex Vitale, professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College here in New York. He's the author of The End of Policing. His new piece for Truth Out is headlined, There Are Good Reasons to Defund the FBI. They Have Nothing to Do with Trump. Well, Professor Vitale, let's start there. Um, it might shock many to hear— and we just chose a few clips, but they are growing around the a country. Defund the FBI from Republicans all over the United States. Can you talk about this? Well, it is a kind of amusing ideological confusion on their part. They've rested so much of their platform on a kind of back the blue authoritarianism. And to now see that uh, turned around on the FBI is on the one hand amusing, but on the other hand, I think it's instructive. It tells us a lot about actually what they think the role of law enforcement is. It's not the neutral professional enforcement of the law that they often claim. It's actually a political tool. The, the difference here is that they think that it's a political tool that should be used on their behalf. And they're really upset to see law enforcement being used against so-called, you know, God-fearing, patriarchal white nationalists, as opposed to using those forces against immigrant communities, communities of color, uh, uh, sex workers, and, of course, the political left. And so we it's a kind of a repeat of January 6th, where we saw you know, uh, back the blue flags being used to beat uh, local police. Do you see a coming together of uh, progressives who have called for defunding the police um, and these calls of really the far right here? No, not at all. I, this is not about trying to build an alliance across the ideological divide. Uh, when people talk about defunding the police on the left, they mean something radically different. I think what the right intends here is not to reduce the power of the FBI, but merely to change the leadership so that it is more politically compliant with a far right agenda. Can you talk about the history of um, Donald Trump himself using the FBI as a political tool? Absolutely. I mean, it is certainly true that the, the FBI is a political tool. The question is, you know, whose interest does it really serve? Under Trump and, and many past presidents, we've seen the FBI used as a tool to gin up fear on crime, to demonize political enemies through things like the war on drugs, even the war on terror. And most recently, with the Trump administration, right as he went into election mode, he tried to capitalize on fear of crime by creating Operation Relentless Pursuit that targeted exclusively Democratic cities for intensive flooding of federal agents, more money for local police, more intensive federal prosecutions 
of basically street crime in a way that was designed to try to say, look, the problems of urban America are not disinvestment, deindustrialization, racial uh, segregation of housing. No, the problems of urban America, of democratic cities is too much crime. And the solution to that is more policing. And that was a political project. And residents in most of these cities that were targeted uh, immediately organized against this initiative and said what they need is investments in housing, stable employment, high quality health care, not more federal policing. So go through the whole history of the FBI, how it was established, and then talk about what you're calling for and how that differs from what, well, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene are calling for. In two minutes, the history of the FBI. <laughs> so it you started, can have as three. The, <laughs> started as the 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 um, the Bureau of Investigations in in the early 20th century, and it was really understood very clearly that this was going to be a political tool for going after communists, anarchists, striking workers, etc. Uh, in the 1920s, J. Edgar Hoover takes it over, and in the early 1930s, it becomes renamed as the FBI, and it becomes a massive system of political policing. Files are kept on millions of Americans, religious leaders, political leaders, celebrities, and of course, labor leaders, leftist organizers, peace activists. And the FBI is the primary tool at the federal level that's used to suppress left movements, from the Palmer raids that attacked opposition to World War I, to attacks on uh, uh, striking workers, the labor movement. By the 1960s, the mission begins to shift as communists and socialist movements have been successfully suppressed in many ways. The new threat in Hoover's eyes becomes the black liberation movements of the 1960s. Uh, beginning really with the the Birmingham bus boycotts and continuing on to the freedom rides and the lunch counter sit-ins, long before even the more, uh, let's say, militant black power movement, the FBI is already laser focused on uh, surveilling and undermining black liberation movements. Uh, dirty tricks like open surveillance of people to intimidate participants, uh, hiring informants, writing fake letters to try to implicate people in marital infidelities, wiretapping phones, false accusations, you know, of being police collaborators to try to sow dissension within the movement. Uh, by the 1980s, this uh, focus shifts increasingly to the environmental movement, targeting Earth First and other organizations. And of course, after 9-11, the focus is on the so-called war on terror. And in order to justify ever-increasing anti-terror, counterterrorism budgets, they concoct all kinds of ridiculous plots. And then they find often um, intellectually incapable people to pin these plots on, they lure them in with false promises uh, for people who had no ability to complete these plots. The, the so-called Herald Square bombing plot in New York City is an example where the FBI celebrated that they prevented this terrorist attack by a young man who, who had no idea what he was involved in, was completely incapable of carrying it out, and, and asked at the last minute if he could call his parents to ask permission to engage in this behavior. So the FBI has always been a tool of, of repression of left-wing movements. 
And so how did this change? If you can talk more specifically about uh, President Trump's Operation Relentless Pursuit and the cities he targeted. Sure. So Operation Relentless Pursuit was a kind of effort to go after uh, Trump's sort of political boogeyman, right, to say that the, the problems of America were the result of drug cartels and gangbangers and that the way to restore uh, cities was through super intensive law enforcement, the use of RICO statutes, these so-called conspiracy laws that allow them to round up huge numbers of young people because someone that they once, you know, smoked weed in the park with got arrested for shooting someone. Now they're all in a criminal conspiracy and can all be charged with the underlying homicide or shooting or whatever. And so this just flooded these cities with drug enforcement uh, agency, uh, the DA agents, ATF, FBI, who just went out on arrest raids, jump outs and all the rest. And, you know, one of the things that's shocking about this is that all seven of the Democratic mayors in the targeted cities basically embraced this. Baltimore, somewhat less so. Uh, they welcome the infusion of money for local policing. They welcome the infusion of federal law enforcement. And this really shows kind of a deeper bipartisan crisis about the role of law enforcement in trying to, you know, revitalize American cities. I shouldn't have said how did it change, because that was a continuation. But how do you see what the FBI has done now um, in uh, searching the home of President Trump and those who'd always supported um, the agency, um, <clears throat> now comparing them to the Gestapo and certainly right up to President Trump uh, attacking them? Yeah, well, we've always had some FBI enforcement of the extreme right, uh, the KKK and, and some of the other extreme right wing groups over the last 20 years. But it has always been anemic and short lived and basically in the service of a very kind of conservative um, centrism that wants to sort of wipe out any kind of populism. You know, the, the kind of New York Times liberal uh, anti-populism that prefers a kind of technocratic neoliberal approach to problems. And so what we're seeing here is, you know, some flexing of centrist muscle to try to shut down the most extreme parts of the right wing in a way, though, that I think is going to backfire and that does nothing to actually address the widespread popularity of these extremist views. I mean, when Marjorie Taylor Greene says we should defund the FBI, she immediately gets hundreds of thousands of likes on her on her Twitter feed. So these are these are what we thought were fringe ideas have become way too mainstream. And the idea that we're going to fix this problem with some indictments of Giuliani and Trump, I think, is very short sighted. So what are you calling for? Well, I think we need to, you know, use this rhetorical opening to raise up some existing efforts to try to actually rein in the power of the FBI. You've got uh, groups like Defending Rights and Dissent that's trying to rework the FBI First Amendment Protection Act that John Conyers introduced in the 1980s to restrict the FBI's political policing powers. I think we need to look at the Breathe Act introduced by Ayanna Presley and others 
that would uh, reduce funding for federal law enforcement and shift those resources into positive uh, on-the-ground public safety programs. We need to look at efforts to end the war on drugs by groups like the Drug Policy Alliance. Uh, we need to get the FBI and federal law enforcement out of using RICO statutes to go after young people in urban areas. The uh, Decriminalizing Neighborhood Network is developing campaigns to rethink the use of the RICO Act. So there, there really are efforts underway across the country to reduce the power and scope of the FBI in ways that limit their ability to demonize and criminalize those on the left and those who've been left out of the neoliberal consensus. Alex Vitale, I want to thank you for being with us, professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College here in New York, author of The End of Policing. We'll link to your piece in Truth Out. There are good reasons to defund the FBI. They have nothing to do with Trump. Next up, the CIA and former CIA director Mike Pompeo have been sued for spying on U.S. lawyers and journalists who met with WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange while he was living in political asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. We'll speak with the lead lawyer in the case. Stay with us. Peace and Privacy by the Shoes. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The CIA and former CIA director Mike Pompeo were sued Monday for spying on U.S. lawyers and journalists who met with Julian Assange while he was living in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where he had political asylum. The lawsuit is being filed as Britain prepares to extradite the WikiLeaks founder to the United States, where he faces up to 175 years in prison for violating the Espionage Act by publishing classified documents exposing U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. Assange spent nearly seven years inside the embassy, from 2012 till April 2019, when Metropolitan Police entered the embassy arrested him after Ecuador revoked his political asylum. The lawsuit filed Monday accuses the Spanish security firm UC Global of spying on Assange and his visitors inside the embassy on behalf of the CIA. UC Global and the company's director, David Morales, are also named as defendants in the new lawsuit, which comes less than a year after Yahoo News revealed the CIA considered abducting and possibly assassinating Assange while he was in the embassy. On Monday, several plaintiffs in the lawsuit spoke during an online news conference. This is Deborah Herbeck. She's a media lawyer who visited Assange at the Ecuadorian embassy in London several times to discuss sensitive legal matters. On arrival, there was a strict protocol for the protection of Julian, we were told. 
passports, mobile phones, cameras, laptops, recording devices, and other electronic equipment were turned over to the security guards in the lobby. We learned much later through a criminal investigation under the supervision of a court in Spain that while visitors like me were meeting with Julian in the embassy conference room, the guards next door were taking apart our phones, removing and photographing SIM cards, and we believe downloading data from our electronic equipment. Their boss, David Morales from UC Global, who appears to have been recruited by the CIA through associates of Sheldon Adelson during a visit to a tech conference, was making regular trips to Washington, D.C., to New York, to Las Vegas, reportedly to hand over thumb drives and to receive further instructions from his U.S. government handlers. In other words, during our meetings with Julian at the embassy, recordings of our confidential conversations and the contents of our electronic devices were being delivered into the hands of the United States government. I'm a New York lawyer. I have the right to assume that the U.S. government is not listening to my private and privileged conversations with my clients and that information about other clients and cases I may have on my phone or laptop are secure from illegal government intrusion. This is not just a violation of our constitutional rights. This is an outrage. That's, again, the attorney, Deborah Herbeck, who is a plaintiff in the new lawsuit against the CIA and the former CIA director, Mike Pompeo, for spying on her and other visitors when they met with WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. We're joined now by Richard Roth, the lead attorney who filed the lawsuit on Monday. Lay out the case, Richard. Uh, hi, Amy. Thank you for having me. So the case is very it's very simple and, and very troubling. Uh, essentially, there are these individuals uh, who work at the embassy who um, are just there to essentially monitor the traffic that comes in. What we learned was that through a Spanish court proceeding, we learned that, in fact, U- UC Global um, at a, at a, went to a convention and presented a convention where Sheldon Adelson, as Deborah Herbeck said, essentially introduced them to um, brought them in to the wings of the CIA to not only just monitor who comes to to uh, visit Julian Assange at the Ecuadorian embassy, but to actually take their phones, their cell phone, their their laptops, any kind of recording devices, and to image them while they were inside. Because when they walked in, they had to leave them with the security company. We also learned that they were streaming, that they actually had streaming microphones and cameras inside the embassy for meetings with Julian Assange. We learned this in the Spanish court proceeding, and there are witnesses who essentially were employees at UC Global thinking that they were just doing their job and learning from Morales that all of this was going back to, quote, American intelligence. It was going back to the Americans. It was going back to the dark side. And these individuals came forward and told, essentially, the Spanish court and and others that they did not understand at the time that they were part of this enterprise that tape-recorded everything that Julian Assange did. And what's very troubling about it is not only is it a violation of the Fourth Amendment— uh, your right to privacy. But you have lawyers, you have journalists, you have doctors who went to visit Julian Assange. And if doctors went in, there's, an, there's a, a doctor-patient privilege, there's an attorney-client privilege. And so not only did they literally listen in on the conversations, but any client of, for example, Deborah Urbex, who uh, had information on her laptop, not even 
Assange's was was the the U.S. government now has privy to. So it's very troubling. Uh, Deborah's comment that it was an, it's an outrage is, is is square on point. And so what we've done is we've commenced an action to essentially. Um, let the world know and to seek damages for these plaintiffs who are journalists, who are lawyers, who essentially went to the embassy, um, unbeknownst to them, had everything of theirs recorded and, and imaged, and uh, purely, clearly a violation of the Fourth Amendment. So we've sued Morales, UC Global, we've sued the CIA, and we've sued Mike Pompeo for the outrageous conduct. On top of that, Mike Pompeo, in his very first address when he became CIA director, let it be known he was going to go after Julian Assange. He I called Julian Assange and WikiLeaks that. a non-state hostile intelligence uh, agency, and and he and he and he called Julian a fraud. And 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 there's plenty of evidence, more of which we will get through discovery, that essentially would lead one to conclude that the CIA went in took the UC Global and put it under its wing to, to allow it to record and listen to everything that Julian Assange was saying. Richard, I want to go to that clip of then-CIA director Mike Pompeo in 2017 uh, talking about WikiLeaks in his first address as CIA director in the Trump administration. WikiLeaks walks like a hostile intelligence service and talks like a hostile intelligence service. It has encouraged its followers to find jobs at the CIA in order to obtain intelligence. It directed Chelsea Manning in her theft of specific secret information. It overwhelmingly focuses on the United States while seeking support from anti-democratic countries and organizations. It's time to call out WikiLeaks for what it really is, a non-state hostile intelligence service often abetted by state actors like Russia. Julian Assange later responded to Pompeo's allegation in an interview with journalist Jeremy Scahill on the podcast Intercepted. Pompeo has stated that WikiLeaks instructed Chelsea Manning to go after certain information. That's an interesting revelation. And then there is his statement that this, i.e. WikiLeaks and its publications, uh, end now. So how does he propose to conduct this ending? Uh, he didn't say, but the, the CIA is only in the business of collecting information, kidnapping people and assassinating people. So it's quite, it's quite a menacing statement that he does need to, to clarify. And again, Richard Roth, um, Yahoo News last year revealed that the CIA did consider abducting and possibly assassinating Julian Assange while he was in political asylum in the embassy. Um, your comments on this, and of course, Pompeo could be a presidential candidate uh, in the next presidential election. Yeah, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks is a publication. It gets information from sources and publishes it, no different than the New York Times, no different than any newscaster. It does nothing more. There is an indictment alleging more. Uh, certainly, the government will have to prove it. Uh, but the bottom line is, that thus far, all we've seen is publication. It's no different than the Pentagon Papers, the New York Times um, actually published. So the, the, they are, the, the, there, is a, there is a very clear purpose for the news, and that is, if information comes in, their, in its possession, and it doesn't matter which news 
resource, whether it's Fox or whether it's CNN, then it has not only uh, is it right, but it has an obligation to tell the world that this is what I have. There's no evidence, and and, and we'll certainly see if he's extradited at this trial, that actually the WikiLeaks was actually involved in the hacking of any computers by the NSA. Chelsea Manning is a different story. But if Chelsea Manning gives information to a to the New York Times, you can you can bet your bottom dollar. New York Times is going to publish that because that is its obligation. And that's all WikiLeaks is. The why Mike Pompeo went ahead and went so far, so extreme to essentially label WikiLeaks as a as a hostile non-state intelligence service is is just remarkable. And then what he did was he they went ahead, they went ahead and using a, a UC Global, they actually went in and they are the ones that uh, that that t- wrongfully took information. There's a real irony here. While WikiLeaks is being charged of wrongfully taking information, it's the CIA that wrongfully took information, not only of Assange, but of U.S. citizens. Uh, Ms. Urbach, uh, Margaret Kunstler, and other plaintiffs. So there's a real irony here that, that what they're being accused of is what the CIA was doing, which is very, very troubling. And, of course, many journalists. I wanted to go back to 2014. In a Democracy Now! exclusive, we went inside Ecuador's embassy in London to interview WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, as he had just entered his third year of political asylum. We're in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where Julian Assange took refuge two years ago. He's been detained in Britain for close now to four years. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Julian. Thank you, Amy. How are you doing here? It's been over two years that uh, you have really not seen daylight for any extended period of time. There's been nearly four years that I've been detained without charge in one form or another here in the United Kingdom, first in prison, the solitary confinement, then under house arrest for about 18 months, and now uh, two years here uh, in the embassy. The Ecuadorian government uh, gave me political asylum in relation to the ongoing national security investigation by the DOJ, the Department of Justice, uh, in the United States into our publications and also into sourcing efforts. So did I enter into a conspiracy with Chelsea Manning, uh, who was sentenced last year to 35 years in prison. So the, the question as to ha- how I'm doing, of course, uh, personally, it's a difficult situation in a variety of ways. I, I would say that when someone's in this position, uh, what you are most concerned about is the, the interruption in your family relationships. Uh, so because of this, the security situation, that's made it very hard for uh, my children uh, and my parents. So that's Julian Assange when we interviewed him. And people can go to democracynow.org to see um, all the interviews we did with Julian Assange uh, in London. Um, But the significance of now him being held for—that was 2014. He'd been held for four years. So we're talking 12 years now in the maximum security Belmarsh prison, where Britain is preparing to extradite him to face espionage charges in the United States. What role do you see your lawsuit playing in the possibility of stopping this extradition? So um, it's a great question. And, 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 and let's just talk for a second about the fact that he's in a maximum security prison, a maximum security prison for a publisher. It's, it's that in and of itself is an outrage. But the role is the following. If, in fact, 
we can prove that the CIA was listening to and taking information. And that includes Julian Assange's lawyers, criminal lawyers, in the actual extradition proceeding and in the proceeding which presumably will be tried in the Northern District of, of um, Virginia, when in fact uh, he, if, he, if in fact he is extradited and, when, and if in fact he is tried. So think about it. The CIA, years before he's even tried in Virginia, has tape recordings of the conversations Julian Assange had with his lawyers. We think that that information is so outrageous that if, in fact, we can pr we prove our case, when we go to the Virginia court, there, there could be a, a federal court judge in Virginia that looks at the CIA's conduct and says, I, I, I can't. There's not a chance I will let you try this case in light of the fact that you're the ones that spied on him. You have all his information. And, and the goal with that lawsuit, independent of this one, is to have that lawsuit thrown out to let the man, let the publisher publish. That's all we're asking is let the publisher publish. I'm not the lawyer in that case. I know the lawyer in that case. He's a, a, very, a, a highly qualified uh, uh, Washington, D.C. criminal lawyer. Uh, but that's what they're going to that's the goal there. The goal there is to just let the publisher publish. That's all it is. And the irony is yesterday, Rand Paul uh, said that the Espionage Act, an Espionage Act, for which Julian has been essentially indicted, uh, should be repealed. So on the one hand, you have a, 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 a major Republican senator saying we should repeal the Espionage, Espionage Act. And on the other hand, we have a, a, a full course press on, on Julian to get him convicted for dozens and dozens of years under that same Espionage Act. And what further information are you getting from UC Global um, in terms of the Spanish court case and its connection to Sheldon Adelson, um, the late uh, casino magnate, where they apparently met in Las Vegas at a tech conference? Correct. They met at what well, we a conference called a SHOT conference, S-H-O-T. And uh, what we've learned is that's when Adelson actually introduced uh, Morales to the CIA. And what we're getting from the Spanish courts, even though it is technically sealed, there is information coming out. And what we're getting from the courts is that people that worked at UC Global— did not really—that was not the job they took. Their job was to allow people to come in and out of the embassy in, 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 a, in a, a, a structured manner. And all of a sudden, they find out that the tape recordings are going on, and they're, adding, and they're adding recordings here, and they're adding devices there, and they're returning it to America. And they're learning from, from Morales that this information is going to, quote, the Americans. It's going to, quote, American intelligence. Why um, would, uh, would information— a, be taped and go to American intelligence. So that's all information that we currently have. We intend on getting a lot more from UC Global. Uh, we, we obviously just started the lawsuit yesterday. So there's a process that has to take place. Um, we certainly expect resistance on, on many parts, including Pompeo. But that's the information that we intend on getting from these UC Global employees who are going to, who are going to tell us that they were directed to engage in this conduct and provide it to the uh, Central Intelligence Agency. It's, 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 it's nothing short of outrageous. You're also alleging that there was an official Ecuadorian rep, Gabriela Pais, who was bribed with $20,000 in cash a month, according to the Spanish lawsuit. That's correct. That's correct. The money was being paid uh, to, to, to numerous people to allow for this intelligence to take place. It's, it's obvious that the, 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 the purpose of putting someone, someone seeking asylum and going in an embassy is essentially to shield them from the law.
And what happened, which was essentially the case for the first four years. But what happened was not only was he, he was shielded, I guess, physically, but what happened was that whole, that whole process was reversed when Pompeo became CIA, um, the head of the CIA to essentially get from Assange and all the people that come in there, um, all the information that really should have been confidential. So we will, we, we intend on, uh, taking depositions. We intend on getting documents. The Spanish proceeding is, is, uh, a little difficult to get information from because it is sealed. But even the Spanish court has, has subpoenaed um, Mike Pompeo to testify. And Mike so Pompeo the is being sued as a private citizen in your case, as well as the CIA? That's correct. That's absolutely correct. For damages? And has he responded? Uh, no, he's not responded yet. Um, we just filed it. We will serve it. Uh, we don't know what kind of response we're going to get. We do know that he's, that Pompeo, um, my understanding is that he's been hesitant and has not um, been forthright with the subpoena in the Spanish courts. I don't know if he'll be forthright or, um, uh, and, and we'll probably be, have the same hesitancy in, in New York, but we shall see. Well, I want to thank you, Richard Roth, lead attorney representing the lawyers and journalists who filed a new lawsuit over CIA surveillance of their meetings with WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange while he was in political exile in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. He has been jailed now for over 12 years now at the Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison as Britain weighs extraditing him to the United States. Next up, we look at the growing calls for longtime political prisoner Matulu Shakur to be granted compassionate release. Stay with us. Fortune by Phil Oaks, sung by Joan Baez. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Dozens of civil rights groups have joined an urgent push for the compassionate release of longtime political prisoner Matulu Shakur from prison. The 72-year-old black liberation activist has been jailed for over 35 years, now suffering from bone cancer, reportedly near death. Matula Shakur is the stepfather of rapper Tupac Shakur. He was part of the black nationalist group Republic of New Africa that worked with the Black Panther Party and others. He was convicted in 1988 of conspiracy in several armed robberies, one of which resulted in the deaths of a guard and two police officers, and also for aiding the 1979 prison escape of Asada Shakur, who fled to Cuba, where she now lives. All of Matulu Shakur's co-defendants have been released or have died. 
He's reportedly expressed remorse for the lives lost and taken responsibility for his crimes. He has stage 3 bone marrow cancer and has been eligible for mandatory parole since 2016. For more, we're joined by two guests. Nikichi Taifa is a lawyer and CEO of the Taifa Group, longtime friend and supporter of Matulu Shakur. Brad Thompson is a civil rights and criminal defense attorney with the People's Law Office in Chicago. He's just filed two new requests for the compassionate release of Matulu Shakur uh, to the original judge in the case, who's now over 90 years old, semi-retired. He's also filed with the U.S. Parole Commission. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Um, Brad Thompson, let's begin with you. Um, where is Matula Shakur right now? Um, what is his physical state, and what are you calling for? Good morning, Amy. Thank you for having me. Um, right now, Dr. Shakur is at the Federal Medical Center in Lexington, Kentucky. It's a federal prison, and he is in a desperate medical situation. He's been battling multiple myeloma, bone marrow cancer since 2019. And he—that's an incurable cancer that he received treatment for, but the treatment has stopped working. And in May of this year, he was given a prognosis of six months or less to live. So that means at this point, it's less than three months that he has left to live. Uh, he is fighting to survive, and he wants everyone to know that he's fighting to survive, and he appreciates all the support he's getting around the world. But the situation is extremely dire. So as you mentioned, we filed two separate pieces of litigation to try to seek his release. One is a motion for compassionate release in the Southern District of New York, which goes before the sentencing judge, who, as you mentioned, is still sitting on the bench as uh, in senior status, semi-retired. The second piece that we filed is just last week, we filed a petition for a writ of habeas corpus in the Eastern District of Kentucky. That's a federal court in Kentucky challenging the Parole Commission's most recent denial of parole, of mandatory parole, to Dr. Shakur. And we just filed that last week, alleging that that denial is so egregious that it's a violation of Dr. Shakur's constitutional rights. Now, explain. He's been eligible for parole since 2016? Yes, that's correct. So Dr. Shakur is uh, in a limited class of federal prisoners that are eligible for parole. And the law he was sentenced under establishes that at 30 years, there's what's called mandatory parole, which is a strong presumption of release. Now, in 2016, the Parole Commission, the U.S. Parole Commission, denied him mandatory parole on problematic justifications that were challenged by attorneys in court. And a federal judge found that his due process rights were violated by that denial and ordered a new hearing. Just earlier this year, a new mandatory parole hearing was held for Dr. Shakur, and the Parole Commission again denied mandatory parole, erroneously finding that he was likely to commit another crime. Now, that's a dubious assertion under any circumstances, based on Dr. Shakur's phenomenal prison record and his ongoing advocacy for reconciliation and nonviolence. But it's even more absurd and outrageous given his current medical situation. He's struggling to even sit up in bed 
and the parole commission maintaining that he's likely to commit another crime in his current condition is patently false and absolutely outrageous. And what did Judge Haight say? Again, the sentencing judge who's 91 years old now, who um, you have gone before uh, before, and he said he isn't near death enough, but you can come back when he is? Correct. So we filed for compassionate release in 2020. That was early in Dr. Shakur's diagnosis of multiple myeloma, and that was also— early in the stages of the COVID pandemic. At that point, Dr. Shakur was 69 and then 70 and receiving cancer treatment. So he was at high risk of COVID. The sentencing judge at that time denied our request, ruling that his death was not imminent and it was not inevitable that he would catch COVID. Since that denial, he has tested positive for COVID three separate times. And he is now absolutely imminently facing death. And so we're going back to that judge and requesting that his sentence be really reduced and he be immediately granted release this as is, the law provides. This is a clip of Matulu Shakur from the film Dope is Death about his activism using acupuncture to treat drug addiction in the Bronx in the 70s and 80s. My name is Matulu Shakur. Well, I think it's important to realize that uh, the pioneers are always the ones targeted as the fools and the haysayers and all the rest. Matulu was our leader. He was one of the most vocal activists in the community at the time. If it wasn't for Matulu, maybe we would have never had the acupuncture program. He helped to heal people. He liked healing people. He was good at it. There's no doubt about that. But I think he used it as a, also as a political tool. That's Matula Shakur in Dope is Death. Nikichi Taifa is a longtime friend and supporter of Dr. Matula Shakur, um, was one of his original lawyers. Um, you've known him for so long. If you can say more about him and what you are calling for, Nikichi. Well, I would just say that I was honored to work with social justice movements that Matulu Shakur was involved with during the uh, 70s. I've always known him to be an astute human rights activist, both domestically as well as internationally. In 1987, recently out of law school, I worked with his attorney, uh, Chokwe Lumumba, in helping to fashion novel legal uh, briefs calling for the dismissal of the indictment. Since that time, there have just been an outpouring, a groundswell of support for his release. He's not only a phenomenal healing, uh, uh, in terms of healing modality, in terms of treating addiction with acupuncture, he's also, like I said, a human rights activist. There are organizations such as NAACP, Legal Defense Fund, the ACLU, Color of Change, the National Conference of Black Lawyers, Center for Constitutional Rights, and the like, who have called upon appeal to the Department of Justice, U.S. Parole, uh, commission, the, um, uh, the the judge in the case, the, um, the Biden to release him uh, pursuant to his clemency powers to let him go. He has served enough time. It is time for him to be able to uh, uh, live out these remaining days in the comfort of his family and friends, all of his white defendants, co-defendants uh, or 
people who were charged in similar conspiracies, some of whom I represented, every single last one of them have been released from a prison. Only Matulu remains behind bars. There's racism throughout the uh, the inside and outside, and even in, in the movement as the government um, um, targets people. Matulu is still being targeted. Well, Nikichi Taifa, I want to thank you for being with us, longtime friend, former lawyer and supporter of Matulu Shakur, and Brad Thompson, the current lawyer for Matulu Shakur, who lies near death um, in prison uh, in Kentucky. Uh, he Brad Thompson is with the People's Law Office in Chicago. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astudio. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.